Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The Gospel of John sets forth an alternative definition of truth which distinguishes, I think, the theological enterprise from every other truth endeavor. So I've entitled this this morning, Resurrection Truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the life and light found in Christ They're not of the world, and I'll explain that here in a little bit by Jesus saying when he says, I am not of this world, he means not from this world. Though they light up the world, his truth lights up the world and provides a new definition of truth. He's going to bring together life, light, and the way. And a new understanding of the world and everything in it. So... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 4 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Truth and life are equated in John. Life is the truth. And we know this on this day, Easter, life or resurrection life is the truth set forth. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 4.14, this is the conversation with the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Last week I contrasted two systems of meaning, two languages. I was referencing John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about, it's actually the word there, he says, your native language is lying. And Paul refers to this as the world's wisdom. I think it's the law of sin and death. This lying language is built upon death. It's built upon the tomb. You know, Jesus in Matthew, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. That is, they're refusing to identify with the death, those who killed the prophets. And Jesus says, so you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Tomb building, Jesus is saying, memorializing the dead, whether those prophets killed by the Jews, those sacrificed to the gods, those killed in war, 
What this does, it covers over the reality and the futility of killing, of death. And in Jesus' description, those who build the tombs, that is, they're memorializing, they're reifying, they're sacralizing the dead. They're guilty of those who deal the killing. Apparently because this obscures the reality of what they've done. And Jesus sees himself as the exposure of this reality. He says the blood shed since the foundation of the world. The, hit, the world has been, you know, this secret hidden since the foundation of the world is exposed. And so in Luke 24.5, the angels ask the women who come to the tomb, Why do you come here seeking the living one among the dead? And we see Mary in John lingering at the tomb. And Jesus tells her, don't linger, leave the tomb, go and tell the others. This world would linger at the tomb as culture begins at the grave, quite literally, with writing, with memorializing. But also because tombs and graves mark in Jesus' description the cultural solidarity. You know, we gather around the tombs of the unknown soldier, or we gather around the tombs of those who have sacrificed themselves for the nation. In Jesus' description, this cultural solidarity, which forms around violence, projected onto others and off of ourselves. That is, they killed the prophets, we didn't. And then they're going to kill Jesus. And this is why the empty tomb of Jesus, it relativizes the law, it relativizes understanding, wisdom. And so where the tomb is empty, truth is founded on a different order. Resurrection life gives us a new order of truth. And I'm referencing John because he, there's some 42 verses, and don't get nervous, I'm not going to do all 42 verses. Okay, <laughs> Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I'll reference a series here from chapter 5. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're looking the wrong place, Jesus is saying. It is they that bear witness to me. And then 11.25, this is the story of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. I believe that theology actually begins. You know, John, the Gospel of John is the most theological in the beginning was the Word, the Logos of Christ. And what we mean by Logos, Word, is what Paul means when he says the Word of the Cross, uh, the Gospel, the principle of truth built upon life, I think is another way of saying the same thing. And so there is a kind of living truth, and then there is what we might call the truth that is dead. You know, this is the conversation when Jesus stands before Pilate and says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And this, of course, is a major topic. I'm sure Pilate was well-educated in Hellenistic 
philosophy. And, and the Peronists would say that truth could not be grasped. And so he's asking a, a real question, but of course it's a skeptical question. He leaves before Jesus could answer. So there are factual truths, you know, the cat is on the mat. There are historical truths. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. It's the one thing I remember from history class. There are scientific truths. Water is H2O. But when Christ says he is the way, the truth, and the life, I believe the very definition and function of truth are changed up. The truths of history, of science, you know, just factual truths, they pertain to the world, they're constituted as true in reference to other things. And the truth of Christ, then, I guess we could treat it as merely factual, that, well, he was born in Bethlehem, or, you know, scientific, maybe we could refer to the biology. But if we limit Christ to that, to the historical the factual, the scientific, we're going to miss the living way in which this truth pertains. This is truth of a different order. And so Christ's truth claim of being the way and the life is a truth that exceeds these normal ways of doing, the predominant notions of truth. This is a living or lived truth in that the life is the truth. This is the song we just sang. I know that he lives. In other words, it's an experiential truth. There is a sharing in this truth. And this means it's subjective, yes. It's not simply that, but it is that. It's a first order truth. Now you may not be interested in the next, this next guy, but I'll reference him. Maybe the culminating point of philosophical understanding was that great Nazi philosopher, Martin Heidegger. And he, you know, he was trying to say the truth is the truth of the world. He says in the world's worlding, imagining that the world is the ultimate context for truth. Christ says his truth is not of the world. His truth and life are not the ways of the world. And he pictures a complete humanity as not of the world. He says, because they are not of the world, his disciples, even as I am not of the world. Now this doesn't mean that the truth resides elsewhere, but his truth is not from, it's not contained in the world, but it encompasses the world. And Christian truth locates and relativizes this kind of creaturely order. In John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, through Christ, through the Logos. He is the creator. And nothing came into being apart from him. It's an absolute statement. The ungraspable realms, you know, time, space, language, embodiment, I believe they necessarily divide the world up and they deal out, in dividing, they deal out death. You know, time alone would deprive us of all things in that there is no present but only the past and the future and converging in a kind of instantaneous now. You know, can you grab it? You can't get it. It's a kind of every instant is annihilating. And maybe that's the characteristic of human embodiment that we're subject to entropy, to age, to dying. You know, our life 
is continually pointed to the grave from conception. If we think of creation as a big bang, well, we know that it's going to have an explosive end. That is, where creation is the medium, it constricts the message. Death, entropy, they seem to arise out of an original nothingness, and that clings. What is disappearing and what is heard is continually lost in time. Now, I'm just saying something that Paul says very simply. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, For indeed the form of this world is passing away. That's the truth of this world. Truth cannot be pinned down in this world as it's continually dying, it's continually changing, it's continually passing. It only appears complete after the fact. You know, the truth is really dead on arrival. Once we hear about it, it's already finished. It's after the fact. And isn't that the sense that only after things disappear are they fully known? Only then do we have a definitive word, so that the epitaph is the final and full word in this world's truth. But the cross and Easter displace the finality of the epitaph. That here is the word which was in the beginning, which is God. He is the beginning, as Colossians 1.18 puts it, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have the first place in everything. And so the resurrection of Christ is the final and full word displacing death with life. In him was life. His life is the light of truth. He is the beginning. You know, the word beginning here at the start of John actually is the word arche. He is the arche. He is the source. He is the head. Not simply the first in a temporal line, but here is the origin of all things. The form of life in Colossians is hidden with Christ in God. As the life does not reveal itself in the world as it exceeds the world. In Ephesians, you know, the picture is that in 1.4 that when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This life precedes the world and it surpasses the world. This resurrection life, though, is in effect now. It's not simply past and future, but it's now. Also Colossians. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, present tense resurrection, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And so this is not a passage out of life or out of the immediacy of life, but it exceeds time and space and place in the experience of a fullness of life. If I were to rewrite the beginning of John, the prologue of John, we might render it, at the source of all is the Word. That is, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word here is the crucified and risen Jesus. And the Word is God. And from out of this truth, from out of this wisdom, you know, the word is logos. What is logos? It's word, truth, wisdom. Out of this truth is life in all things. And so really this verse at the beginning is a summation of the whole gospel. That Jesus is the ground of truth in the first place, you know, with the cross. That is, the truth begins on the cross 
and comes back to us. And it's the head of the body, the king in authority upon his throne. You know, that's the picture that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. There is the glory of God revealed, ironically, because this is the moment in which death is being conquered. That he is the source and fulfillment of all things, and his death and resurrection is the revealing of that reality. And so there is a truth that is divided, the truth of this world, and then there is the truth of Christ that is united. You know, facts, history, science. It's always a divided truth. We speak of the cat. What cat? Oh, the cat on the mat. Or we speak of Columbus, and we say, well, you know, the Columbus, 1492 Columbus. Or we speak of water. Oh, you know, that's hydrogen, and that's oxygen. That is, we speak of one thing in conjunction with another thing. We locate them in time and space in reference to other references. And the truth is in, it's extrinsic. It's outside of the subject. Have we really said anything about any of those topics? You know, the cat, the mat, Columbus. When Christ claims to be the truth, it's not extrinsic. Christ's claim to truth refers to himself. We can speak of him, I said, you know, historically. We can speak of him factually. But his truth encompasses and exceeds truths about him. It's not just the dates. It's not just the, the time. It's, it's him. Seeing him. Hearing him. Knowing him. Is not divided from what is seen and heard and known. He is the light. And what is first illuminated is him. He is the word. And what is heard is him. He is the revealer. And he is the revelation. In that it is his self-revelation. And so in each instance, this is life gained in the seeing, hearing, knowing, but ultimately in the living. And so maybe we could say we pass from mere meaning to a fullness of meaningfulness. And so Greek philosophical truth, you know, Pilate's question. And maybe that's just characteristic of human thought. It makes division an absolute. It separates the forms of truth. You know, in Greek thought, if you talked about the forms, well, if you talked about water, the H2O-ness of the water, and not the water itself, the truth of the water, the cat, is in the name, not the thing itself. Because truth for the Greeks is unchanging, right? If something is changing, it's untrue. And therefore the sign, the name, the language is the truth of the thing. And in turn, the being of the world, you know, this is, it's equated with God. You know, who's God? God is the unmoved mover. What does God think about? God only thinks about himself because God can't think about other things because other things are changing. So God is the great narcissist of the sky. In Greek philosophy, that's what you get. The same principle, I think, is at work in each realm of truth. It, the signs, the language takes precedent over what they signify. The description, the name, the location, the date, the chemical composition. And these things show themselves as external to the reality shown. Appearance apart from the substance or an empty word devoid of content 
What is that? That's a lie, right? Ultimately, it's a lie. And I think that's the conversation in John chapter 8. That's why Jesus says, well, actually, you're speaking a language that is empty. It's full of lies. It's an empty language. The Logos of Christ stands over and against this divided Logos, you know, small l Logos. You understand John is taking the Greek philosophical term Logos and applying it to Christ, describing truth not in the small l Logos of the Greeks, but in the Logos of Christ. In the beginning was Christ, was the Word, and this Word was with God. And so to speak or hear this word it entails the reality of who he is. And there is no division between the sign, the word, and what it signifies. And the passage of this sign into the flesh, into the spoken word, into history, into time and space, it's not diminished by these things, but these mediums are made relative to who he is. Time and history do not diminish his presence. I believe that's the significance. I am before Abraham. Who he is, embodiment, does not delimit his universal incarnate presence. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, I am there in your midst. That we are the continuation of the incarnate risen Christ. He gives himself through these media. But what he gives exceeds these creaturely things. That includes the Christ within us, right? That exceeds the reality of creation. Those who receive this gift receive life. And this life is who he is. This is the truth. But I'm actually saying a very simple thing. And maybe a way of getting at this same thing is the phenomenology of suffering. Suffering experiences itself. It is only in this way that suffering speaks to us. You know, when you suffer, you have pain. It says to us, by speaking in this way, suffering is that it suffers. You know, there's nothing other than that. It's not an appearance, it's not a name, it's not a fact. Suffering does not appear external to itself. I mean, well, I guess we can see, oh, you're in pain, but I'm not experiencing that pain, you are. So too, the life and truth of Christ are not other than himself and those who enter into this experience, who share the unified life of Christ. He lives within, and I know that he lives within. And what is manifest in Christ is not something else, not a power or a life or redemption. These things that are not separate from who he is. He is what is revealed. The truth of Christianity, the life of Christianity, is what makes it true. And there's no separation between the seeing and what is seen, between the light and what it illuminates. That is, this truth is irreducible. And the concept of truth that accompanies this understanding is going to relativize every other sense of truth. So this revelation is redemptive because it is a sharing in his light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. That is, we begin to experience this life, the temporal, these other things, the intellectual, the sensual. John says, these are forms of darkness, but the light shines in the darkness. This is John 1, 5. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not overcome it. And so the equating of life with the essence of God 
and with the opening of God in Christ, this is the theme of the New Testament, which is to say resurrection, Easter, is the theme. I am the living one, Revelation says. The living God, Timothy says. By him who is declared to the living, Hebrews says. He who is living. And the point of this is the gospel opens this life to all. That's the proclamation in Acts. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people these words of life. This life given to the Son is open to all humanity. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John 5, 25. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. John 6, 63. The divine essence is explicitly stated to be that of life. He's the bread of life. John 6, 48. The water of life. And the life Christ gives, the resurrection life, provides open access to God. This is the final picture in the book of Revelation. That we see the river flowing. You know, think of the water of life. In the middle of the great city there is this river of a water of life. And on each side of the river there is the tree of life. The tree is multiplied. And so what life reveals is itself. Life does not cast us outside itself, but retains in a close embrace itself. And so this folding in of truth and life and a unity which is unbreakable, I believe this is the revelation of Easter. Death, difference, distance, time cannot disrupt the resurrection life. The condition of all true experience. He is risen and this is truth. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.